it was that moment where I was like, the, ch- the system's never going to change from within. I was like, I'm done. You know, I have spent my time. I know how the system works. So I was like, I'm out. But like, I'm going to do everything I can now to change it. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, Anne Wojcicki is the CEO of 23andMe, a company she co-founded 12 years ago to help people understand their DNA. Send her company a little bit of your spit, and they can tell you everything from your ancestry to your genetic health. The business, now valued at more than a billion dollars, gets its name from the 23 pairs of chromosomes in a human cell. And Anne, who is the youngest of three sisters, says she quit an impressive job on Wall Street to start the company with the hopes of fixing our broken healthcare system. Here's her story. Anne Wojcicki, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. Um, thank you for having us to your office. Yeah, anytime. Here in California, Mountain View, California. Um, I just want to describe the office to people because I we've been sitting here for a few minutes and I've been appreciating our surroundings. For example, you looked over your shoulder. You saw it immediately. The <laughs> I'm CEO, bitch. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my communications team loves that. That might be my favorite. That's a good reminder. Office. I know. Well, like, in case anyone didn't know, you just point to that. Exactly. I just, you know, like every day it's an inspiration. <laughs> we know who's in charge. Um, the whiteboard, I appreciate that there's um, some equations, some graphs, and then there's a lovely picture as That's well. My, my daughter drew what she wanted me to wear today. It's like a giant fluffy dress. That looks like a ball gown. Yeah, it's. it, it looks like reminds me of a cake topping that a four-year-old would imagine. It would go great with your Lululemon apparel. <laughs> Uh, I thank you. Every article mentions that you wear Lululemon twenty four seven. Well, I realize you know because you talk. There's that article about the black turtleneck, and then they talk about you know Zuckerberg <laughs> with his hoodie, and I was like, oh, I get Lululemon. Like that's my like. I always wear shorts. I showed up at a meeting the other day in my shorts, and I realized I was like, oh, it's not in my office. Maybe it's awkward that I'm in <laughs> shorts. <laughs> well, I think you chose well. Um, Thank you. And I hope that they're sponsoring you in some way. I should. No, we should totally put that a call to action. I'd love to be sponsored. Okay. Well, I, love, like, I hope Lululemon, box. if you're listening, <laughs> send her a monthly box of workout gear. Also, um, in the office, the, the weights. Oh, I, yeah. I appreciate. So Ooh. you got your three and five pound weights. Do you want to work out while we do this? I, I don't know. It might throw <laughs> me off, but I bet it wouldn't throw you off. It's for your rest because you type all the time. You know, you got to keep your rest strong. And you bike to work every day. It was pouring today, so I did not bike today, which is why I had to drive. It's very, it's always a bad day when I have to drive. Sorry. All good. Well, I'm I'm really glad that we're here. I'm glad that we've covered all of that ground yes. about um, our surroundings. By the way, speaking of our surroundings, the article with your mom on the yeah. cover of the Daily News Star Teacher. So I have to admit, my my mom in true would just keep fashion. She hung that up there. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. She's awesome. By the way, she and I have crossed paths over the years. She's pretty pretty cool. She's pretty awesome. So your story. Mm-hmm. I mean. For those who aren't necessarily familiar with your story, I want to go there in a second, but also 23andMe, Mm -hmm. which is where we are in the 23andMe offices, the company that you founded in 2006, Mm -hmm. FDA approval for the first DNA testing service. Uh, You just got approval for the BRCA test. Correct. Big deal. Yeah. Tell (laughs) our listeners what 23andMe is. 
23 and me is an opportunity for people to learn about their digital self. So instead of just looking in the mirror and you can see what you look like from the outside, you can actually look at your DNA. And to me, your DNA is just like it's it's a secret code inside you. It's fascinating. We all have it. It's like slight differences, um, but it tells you about you. So it's a connection to your past and like where all of your ancestors will come from. And it's a connection to the future as to like who are you and, and, you know, where are you going? What's in your future? So there's a whole ancestry side, which is, you know, ancestry composition. What parts of the world did your DNA come from? And it's almost always somewhat surprising for people to realize, like, how many different countries are in their DNA. Um, and then there's the health side, which you referenced, Braca. Um, there's a whole opportunity for people to understand what it is that is in their DNA that puts them at risk for different conditions. And the reality is that everyone is at risk for something. And for me, the beauty of genetics was always a story of genes and environment, that your genes play a role, but the environment plays a role. And if only I knew what my genes said, then I could potentially change my environment and I could actually be healthier. So for me, there's like this whole story of optimism, like, tell me what I can do to be as healthy as possible. And when I think about success of this company long term, it's, you know, this whole, you know, term like healthy at 100. I want everyone to aspire to be like, I'm not just like, you know, in a nursing home and like well medicated at 100. Like, I want to be healthy and doing yoga at 100. And to me, that is success. Your family, as we were saying a minute ago, pretty incredible bunch of people. Your dad ran the physics department at Stanford. Mm -hmm. Your mom, this world-renowned journalism teacher. Your sister, Susan, Mm -hmm. now the CEO of YouTube, one of the original Google employees. Mm -hmm. Um, And your sister, Janet, is an epidemiologist. Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot of smart, smart people in your blood around you. When you were a kid, what did you want to be? Uh, Oh, that's interesting. Um, I never never really thought that much about about it. Um, my sisters and I were known as kids as the lemon girls because we used to steal our neighbor's lemons and then we would um, carry them up and down the street and sell them back to the neighbors. Um, and so I think like there was something like we always liked business. Yes. Um, I think business and creating was always really interesting to me. I'm I'm really lucky that my parents never put pressure on me to say like, oh, you have to figure out what you want to be. Yeah. Um, I always, I have a very definitive moment. Like when I was in kindergarten, I remember my sister was talking about jeans and I kept staring at her. I was like, but you have shorts on. And, um, and it was because they were talking about DNA. And that was the first time I ever heard about DNA. And I was fascinated, like absolutely fascinated that there's like this thing inside you and you could discover it. So I always love science. Um, so it was, for me, I think we're lucky. Like we kind of all combine a bit of science and business. Um, you know, my sister who's at UCSF, like she is this phenomenal, like she gets to travel the world and study people. And I think my parents really raised us to just be curious and to problem solve. And I think all of us are in, in roles where we are constantly problem solving. What then set you on the path to Wall Street, to being this uh, analyst <laughs> reviewing, because I went, yeah. by the way, I started my career in investment banking. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And I would probably describe a lot of my childhood similarly, that yeah. curiosity was a really big, important part of it. Mm-hmm. I felt sort of entrepreneurial as a kid. I would try and sell stickers door to door. I oh, didn't wow. have any lemons <laughs> in the domain, so I couldn't steal those. But I think the stickers were a really bad business, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, but I'm, I might buy some. Yeah. I love stickers. <laughs> I'll see if I can I find any in my bag. Stickers. <laughs> I actually have a whole collection. Really? Yeah, I do. What's your favorite um, scratch and sniff flavor? Oh, yeah, there's flavor. so many rare, like all the soda ones, root beer. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> we digress. That's a first. <laughs> so what set you on this path to becoming an analyst when you had all of this curiosity inside of you? So I didn't know. I grew up, like I said, I was in an academic environment. I was in college. I didn't know that there were real jobs. Like I genuinely, like <laughs> I, I think back on how naive I was on the job development process. And I just like, I had like the idea of like being in an office and nine to five. Like it was so interesting to me. Like I remember, <laughs> so I interviewed for jobs. My mom was like, just interview for a bunch of stuff. See, um, and I very randomly got this job offer for the Wallenberg family in Sweden doing as an analyst. I had no idea what it was. Um, and I kind of took the job mostly just because I was, I wanted to wear Ann Taylor clothing. Like I thought it would be fun to dress up. <laughs> oh my really, gosh. I've evolved clearly to my Lululemon days. But in some ways, like I think when you're young and you don't know, like it's one thing I advise people everything when you're 22 is interesting yeah like it doesn't matter what job you take just take a job where you're going to learn something and then keep learning and the minute you stop learning get a different job or like switch or Mm -hmm. but just learn and Mm -hmm. i think back on that because i had that mentality um every job i ever had led to led you know contributed to who i am today and what i've learned so in some ways, like as an analyst on Wall Street, I couldn't have asked for a better training because here I was at 22 and I had this opportunity to study every single healthcare company out there. Yeah. And and I used to tell them all the time, I was like, I can't believe you pay me to do this. Like I would do it for free. I love it so much. And I would stay there, you know, I'd stay there till midnight every night just researching companies like and to have the ability to like read about all different kinds of science and then Call the people, like call the Nobel, you know, prize winners and like the CEOs of company and just like and learn about it. I remember there was one CEO and he came in and he was he had a really interesting compound. And we just like with the meeting started at four and by 11 at night, he's like, oh, my God, like, should we get takeout? Like, I'm starving. <laughs> like we and we've stayed really good friends because I was just like, so I couldn't stop asking questions. I was like, oh, my God, I just I love this so much. And I think for me, I love being an analyst because I just got to learn and I got to ask questions. So I always felt like my 10 years on Wall Street was like getting a Ph.D. and then a postdoc. Like I just learned. And for me, the big conclusion that I learned was this was a system that does not reflect what's in my best interest. And I love like in some ways, so much of 23andMe is built on that infrastructure of what I learned that I want to do things in a different way, that I really understood this infrastructure of like the system as it is, is not really out to um, make me the healthiest person I am. And and that's what I want to do. And so 23andMe was intentionally set out to be very different than every other company I'd ever researched because I want it to reflect what's in the best interest of the customer, the consumer, and, and to actually try and help people be healthy. Ten years into being a Wall Street analyst, mm-hmm. you're well compensated for your work. You said yourself you were really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. How did you know you were ready to walk away from it? So I was really enjoying it, but at the same time... Um, you know, the first couple of years, like everything's new and it's super exciting. And it was really fun to go to dinners and parties. Yeah. Um, but having grown up in a relatively frugal academic family, at some point when you see people wasting so much money, um, you know, the first couple of times you're like, oh, well, it's so fun. We're drinking this like $500 bottle of wine. Like it's amazing. Um, and then when you start to recognize like that's the norm, um, it really disturbed me. And so I started volunteering in hospitals at night. So I started volunteering in Belvedere in New York and then at San Francisco General when I was back out here. And I just realized like it was almost my way of cleansing. Like I would go and spend my days, you know, making money 
off sick people, frankly. Like I can read a report. My sister would give a talk about obesity in the coming crisis. And then I would give a talk about obesity. I was like, oh, obesity is like the ultimate money making. There's opportunity. opportunity. I was like, these people don't just like get sick and die. Like these people, they get heart disease and diabetes and diabetic foot ulcers. Like ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. And people would look at me like, oh, you're so evil. And so then I would work in the hospital at night. Um, and I love the patient interaction. And you would see these people who um, are are buying into hope of the system. Like they really like they're sick or their kids are sick and they're like they, they want hope. They want to believe so badly. Um, and then it was the and then you have these people who are like, oh, I'm taking out a third mortgage on my house to try to get this new therapy. And it just it crushed me. It crushed me to see these people and like these people tearing up and like in the trauma of like losing someone and believing like they want it. You know, they want to have a difference in health so badly. Um, and so um, so I, I loved it. You know, I loved the research and the element, but I also just started to feel like this is a system that was taking advantage of people. And then I had a, I did have a specific moment where I was in Washington, D.C., and um, it was I was going to a conference about reimbursement. And I walked into this room and it was in one of the biggest ballrooms in Washington, D.C. And it was this room filled with dark suits and it was a sea of them. I mean, it was just like probably a thousand people. And all these people were at this meeting just to figure out how to optimize billing. And I kept thinking how to not reimburse people. Not necessarily to how to not reimburse, but more to figure out, like, if you're going to your doctor, like, I just had knee surgery. So how do you bill as many things as possible onto that knee surgery? So how do you optimize it? And there's whole, like, you know, you look at the entire consulting word, McKinsey and all these groups, like, they focus on how can you bill more for every procedure? And I just realized, like, this is, like, I'm done, and I really believe, like, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And and I just like it was that moment where I was like, the ch- the system's never going to change from within. So many people make money on the inefficiencies of healthcare, and I felt like that was the end. I was like, I'm done. You know, I have spent my time. I know how the system works, and and I'm much more like my spirit is more of that Robin Hood. Like I now know how the system works. I'm going to now try to make a difference. And have a change. And I like the one thing my parents also taught us, like, I have like, I'm not like, you know, I've ended up in a financially positive situation here. But like, I'm I I don't love money. I love the process of building things and making things. I'd rather be dirt poor, like, but doing something that I'm passionate about and love. So I was like, I'm out. But like, I'm going to do everything I can now to change it. And like, and I think back on specific patients who I spent time with. And um, you know, like there was one woman who I specifically loved and she was um, her mom had had, you know, had a horrible complication in a nursing home because of neglect. And I was there, the person to get her to sign the um, do not resuscitate form. And and she ended up dying that night, wow. the mom. And the woman kept saying to me, she's like, I just don't know what I'm going to do. Like, what am I going to do next Saturday? She's like every Saturday I see my mom. And I think on that, and I think about like, OK, the people who are making money and having margin expansion on the nursing homes and like. The result of that was like worse care. So I like I really like I think about those stories all the time for me is like we are going to genuinely help inspire people and make them um, better advocates for themselves. And we're going to try to have a better prevention system so that people can take better care of themselves and that we are teaching people how to advocate for themselves. When you originally set out to launch 23andMe, this is 2006. Mm -hmm. What did you have in place? How did you raise that first financing for the company? 
Uh, so I think one thing, it's one thing I say, like in, when I invest in companies and, and even we were talking about this philanthropy last night, like I invest in people who are passionate and because passionate people know how to just like they're determined. You know, most people hear a no and they're like, oh, well, they told me no, I can't do it. And I always say like in this building, it's utterly unacceptable to like ever say like I was told I can't do it or no, I can't do this. So I think for us, like we came with a level of passion. Um, and I think it was a well, not that it was a, a well thought out plan, but it was an interesting convergence of the genetic technology is getting cheaper. There's a whole social networking world that is just starting. And there's a reality, there's this like infrastructure where like, you know, doctors control, you know, access to a lot of care. Research is done in such a way that is like only done in institutions um, and so or in, or in pharma companies. So how is it that we could potentially, you know, change a lot? So I think it was a we had a decent idea. And I think we had you know founders that were really passionate about the cause. A lot happened, obviously, between that point and 2013, mm -hmm. when the FDA comes along and says, nope, your product does not meet our guidelines. Right. Um, what happened in that moment? Take us inside of that moment and how important it was for the FDA to give credibility to what you were doing. More No Limits after this quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I'm here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. A lot happened, obviously, between that point and 2013 mm -hmm. when the FDA comes along and says, nope, your product does not meet our guidelines. Right. Um, what happened in that moment? Take us inside of that moment and how important it was for the FDA to give credibility to what you were doing. So I think one thing like we had always known, we had spent... Um, you know, in the earliest days, we used to spend time with like, former FDA officials debating, you know, do we need, are we regulated? Are we a device? Are we not a device? So we had always, um, we always did our best to try and be engaged. So it was like one of those things that was always a question, like in 2013, were you just totally negligent or like, were you just like, so like Silicon Valley arrogance or, um, you know, were you just not communicating well? And I always argued like we, we had the right intentions, but we really like, I realize now we didn't know how to communicate um so it was a moment it was definitely a shock um you know the first time we you know we got the information i didn't quite understand what exactly it meant um and what whether how like, was it delivered uh we were at a strategy offsite meeting and we got my assistant had sent me a note saying you know the fda just couriered something to you my first re reaction was like, don't sign it. Um, and, then, and, then, and then I realized it was already delivered. Um, and then I read it, you know, and because we've gotten warning letters in the past, it was like, yeah, you know, this is like, so, like, this is workable. Like, we can figure this out. And slowly over time, um, 
you know, we realized like this was something that we really, um, this was going to be changing, like life changing for the company. And we had to really, it wasn't as much of a pivot for the company in terms of people saying like, oh, you really pivoted. Like we didn't pivot. Um, what we said is we had to just change the approach to actually climbing up this mountain. And how um, did you figure out how to change the approach? Was it talking to the former FDA uh, officials about what they might recommend or or how did you even think that through? So I spent, so we got the letter on a Friday, um, Monday, it was made public. Um, and I would say I probably spent Tuesday to Friday in my pajamas at my desk, just calling. Like I called lawyer after lawyer, like everyone that we'd ever met in DC getting advice. Um, and um, you know, it spent a fair amount of time like figuring out exactly what the right strategy was going to be. Um, the most important piece of advice I ever got was from another regulatory team at a at a pharma company, and we pitched. You know, I went through like, here's the situation, here's what has to happen, um, and they said to me, they're like, "Do you want to just sell this company in two years?" I was like, "Absolutely not," they're like, because there's one strategy, like you just want to sell the company right. and you're out. There's another strategy, like if you really care about changing healthcare. And you change about like care about the customer experience, just work with the FDA and just do the hard work. And it was honestly the best piece of advice I think that we got because the right, it was always that thing. Like we don't mind doing the hard work. Um, I just need to like, I need to make sure I have everyone aligned and working in the right direction. And so that was sort of the first moment where like, okay, this is, we're just going to, we're just going to obey. Like we're going to just follow, um, like tell us what to do and we will do it. And I think before, um, you know, my team, I'm have 23 means a company full of like really, um, we have a lot of smart people and a lot of people who like to question, you know, which I can mm-hmm. relate to. Um, so we would say like, you know, the FDA, if they had said like, oh, you need 20 samples and we're like, well, statistically, do you really need them? Maybe it's just 17. And what we learned is like, there's a level, um, you know, you follow, you get their input and that they have a lot of, um, they have a bigger knowledge base than we do just being in our company. And, um, you know, the most pivotal thing is we hired Kathy Hibbs, who's our head of legal and regulatory. And it became ob- like so clear to me, we did not know how to communicate and that, um, there was just a lot, le- there's a way of communicating and a way of following through and, in just, in, in every aspect of what, um, you know, the types of clinical validation tests that we were doing and the, um, and in the, um, you know, um, you know, customer comprehension studies, um, it just transformed everything. And it's not that we weren't doing it before. It's just that we understood now what they meant about doing all those types of tests. Mm-hmm. I think it's a business question that a lot of people face in some way where sometimes you have to just follow it to a T. Sometimes you have to find a way to go around it. And in this case, when it's regulatory, they're the recognizing that you just kind of have to follow it and do it the way that it's set in stone. Like as frustrating as the bureaucracy and red tape might seem, you're better off rather than fighting that battle, which is a losing battle. You're better off just going with it once you have full knowledge of what going with it looks like. Right. So I got I got this, um, you know, we got one piece of advice, you know, when you go to the FDA or sorry, when you go to the DMV. You don't question the fact that you have to take the little ticket. You wait in line. You're very obedient. When they ask you to take a vision test, you don't say, oh, I just got my eyes checked. I don't need it. Like, you do it. And I think that there's a level of compliance that, you know, the FDA needs for scale that, like, it just totally makes sense. Like, there's a number of things that you just actually have to do. And I think one thing also just to note is that, um, you know, most other diagnostics today are not regulated by the FDA, 
And so they're regulated by um, the Center for Medicare Services, CMS, as a laboratory-developed test. So that's also part, like, we have other companies that are out there right now that are not regulated by the FDA, but they're regulated by, as an LDT, because they're physician-ordered. Um, and so I think that's where there's, like, also some confusion in the marketplace about standards, and I think that's one thing I'm, I'm happy. Like we've now, we've gone through the FDA path. I see what a difference in testing and rigor that it has. I feel really good. I can say like when I went through, um, you know, user testing, they can be, you know, 10 to 20 rounds of user testing before I actually know I got the kind of comprehension that we need. So there's a level where I feel really good. Like I am a direct to consumer product and I've proven it. Like I've proven that there can be comprehension. And so there's a bunch of other tests that are out there that are not regulated by the FDA. And I think that's where there's there's some confusion out there, I think, for the consumer about exactly what um, what is an F, what's FDA approved and what's not FDA approved. What's the toughest lesson for you along the way? Um, the toughest lesson. Um, I think that there's not. Um, you know, I think in some ways what I one of the main things I learned like is. It, throughout this company, um, success is about determination. There's very few cases where there's overnight success. And, um, you know, there's a lot of times where people in the company would be like, oh, we have to make, you know, that killer product, that killer product, that killer product. And then there's at one point where I was like, you guys, we have it. Um, <laughs> um, and I think that's part of it is like everyone... Um, Knowing just like you work, like we've been working on, on, you know, all of our approvals, like Braca for me was one, like we've worked on this for years. Um, so sometimes like it just takes a lot of work to get something done. And it's one thing I advise to entrepreneurs too, is like, you have to stick with it. Success comes from actually like really sticking with it. And, um, you know, one thing I love is that we have a big education initiative. Like one of our mantras is anyone can be a scientist. And, you know, we say these things, like we say it all the time. I have no idea if there's an impact. But having done this now for 10, 12 years, um, I love, I see kids in PhD programs who are like, because of you, I saw you on, you know, on a channel or on a radio or something. Because of you, like, I believed I could do it. And now I'm in a PhD program at MIT. Like, I, like seeing the impact of what you do is um, is amazing. It's so rewarding. But you only get that when you really stick with it. And I always advise, like, if people are passionate about something, you need a decade to see your impact. And so, like, now I can see the impact of, like, what we have done. And that's even that much more motivating. But, like, it really is important to, to stick through it. So I think that's one of the things that's um, been the most important for me to learn. And in Silicon Valley, where everyone wants to, like, you know, have the next WhatsApp program of 17 people, $5 billion, you know, like, the reality for the most of us, we actually have to work hard. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. One thing I wanted to ask you about is Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Mm -hmm. I know you have previously been supportive of her. Mm -hmm. Does the news in any way change that for you? Do you think that maybe you in some way were duped by her? Or what do you think it says about this well, environment that we're I in? I always try to be supportive of people as people, um, but we never, um, you know, my, there was a lot of internal questioning 
we always had about, you know, data, like we're a very data driven company. And so people, you know, like I love like we debate diets and vitamins and all this stuff all the time. So when there's a new technology out, like I'm I love people who are passionate and supportive and, you know, especially other women in this industry, like I love it. Um, But the company has always said like, well, we want the data. We're always open minded, but like show us the data. And I think that was one of, you know, that was always the advice I gave her is like, you got to publish the data like like 23 and me. We had no. Um, you had no backbone if we hadn't been publishing. You know, we have over a hundred publications today. So, like, we—it um, doesn't matter if I'm like selling a big idea if I can't support it. So, we've always had that philosophy. Um, and she had all of her reasons why she wasn't publishing. But the reality for me is like, we, we like I, I'm supportive of people, but there was always a lack of data for us to know exactly what is this. Mm-hmm. Um, worst advice you've received along the career. Oh, my worst advice. Oh, so many. Um, <laughs> I think the worst, you know, there's in some ways, like there's so many, I don't have a specific um, advice. Actually, you know, the worst advice usually is when I have a gut instinct. And it, to be honest, it's usually around people. Like I want to, I say someone's not right in the role and I have this instinct and someone talks me out of it. Um I think as like as a leader, I have a vision and I realize like now that's like part of going back time back to the very beginning part of my <laughs> I'm CEO bitch um, is like I have a strong vision and like and I know I actually have the best instinct here. I love getting input from other people and I always I'm totally open to changing my mind. Um, but like I'm actually now in charge. And when other people try to overly I love the influence, but I guess I, st- I stand up like I stand strong with my opinions much better. So in the past, when people, I think, overly influenced, um, it was not good. Ann Wojcicki, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much. It was so fun. Thanks for making time you for us You have to wear today. Lululemon next time. I will. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Annie Grossman. She's a former journalist turned dog trainer who's the co-founder and senior dog trainer of School for the Dogs. Here she is to tell you about it. Hi, my name is Annie Grossman. I am a dog trainer and owner and co-founder of School for the Dogs, which is a dog training center in the East Village in Manhattan. This is my dog, Amos, and I became a dog trainer about eight years ago after spending a decade as a journalist, realized I needed to do something else with my life, and uh, I realized I wanted to become a dog trainer, went to the Karen Pryor Academy, graduated, and realized I loved dog training. Nobody was running a dog school the way I wanted to run a dog school. So Kate Sinisi and I began School for the Dogs in my living room in 2012. Today we're located in a storefront in the East Village. We also have an online shop called Store for the Dogs and a podcast and tons of loyal clients. Um, We're really into what we're doing and I can't wait to tell you more about it. Okay, I love that Annie's dog Amos joined her in that message. You can see the video on my Instagram account at Rebecca Jarvis. Amos does not disappoint. And Annie, you are a huge inspiration. Congratulations. Wishing you and School for the Dogs continued success. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as an Entrepreneur of the Week, send us your nominations. Or, by the way, if you have career questions, you can also send those to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. So many of you have been writing, I love it. 
I know how busy we all are, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And to those of you who've been leaving us reviews, like Nancy Muss or Muse, who writes in her five-star review, strong leading women who worked hard, fell down, and got stronger. Very motivating and a pleasure to listen. Thank you so much, Nancy, for leaving us that review. You're helping us build this empire. And thanks to all of you who are leaving us reviews. It does mean the world to us. And a reminder, when you're sharing about No Limits on social media, you can use the hashtag No Limits Podcast. Finally, a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week. Producer Taylor Dunn, editor Michelle Boncardo, research assistant Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.